is Making It Up, a weekly cultured news podcast focused on analyzing and debating anything that comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch up and then two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one by myself. We pick our topics from the Macon Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to work our way to some sort of conclusion, often working through thoughts and challenges along the way. Happy Halloween. Yes, happy Are Halloween. You, I can tell that our office culture is not the sort to dress up. Did you ask them to wear costumes? Because evidently... Uh, uh, no. You know I'm joking. Also, none Nathan, of them... Nathan bought... Nathan kind of had a costume. He bought this really weird contraption, which honestly I almost bought too. It's this headpiece that makes sure your mouth is closed. And the reason why is Nathan is a self-diagnosed mouth breather. So when he sleeps, he wants to try experimenting with breathing through his nose. So you don't have to look that that far. You could log in on Instagram and you can kind of see what it looks like. According to Nathan, actually it works because it's quite challenging to open your mouth. Oh, he's putting it on. He's putting it on. Contraption. Oh. It makes him look like a sumo wrestler. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, I, I've also subscribed to this too. I have an equally weird way when of not breathing through my mouth when I'm sleeping and I was like taping my mouth with medical tape. Okay. That is interesting. This is not where this, no, even this is not in- where I wanted to start with. I just I was just gonna say happy Halloween. Let's move on. All right. Let's move on. Anyways. I went to YY's Ocha Bar this past week in London. Hmm. How was that? That was really crazy. It was really cool. So it's at the Muji flagship on Tottenham Court Road and it's open until November 11th and it's a pop-up matcha bar done in collaboration with Muji using Muji items, but then the matcha is flown in from Japan and then it's whisked when you order. So it's like kind of ready. It's made to your order which is pretty cool. It's like a whole experience. Yeah, it's a whole experience. And YY is there, who, a Macon member and a friend of ours. And then the people that she's hired are also really expert in what they're doing. So it's really fun to t- just talk to them. But it's cool because I think Muji doesn't do very many things like this or doesn't really collaborate with third-party vendors in this way. And so YY and her team being able to organize this is definitely interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I can't. I was in Kyoto over the course of the last few days for a wedding. We can shout them out. They listen to this you know. podcast. Yeah, congratulations to Takuma and Sarah Woo. who got married in Kyoto. The one thing that I think was the, the most eye-opening experience was participating in like a Shinto wedding, which is different, and it definitely has a more ceremonial take on the whole wedding process, where you're kind of led to this small room inside the shrine and you're sitting on both sides along the edge of the of the room so you know how like a yoda church it's Mm -hmm. like rows of seats you're basically sitting on the Mm -hmm. perimeter and there's a lot of bowing and there's a lot of things done in threes like bow like bowing in threes 
pouring is done in threes. I don't know the exact reason, but uh, ultimately it's like, it was really crazy. And the music itself is something that's like very vivid. Mm, interesting. So it's, I would say it's quite serious in that regard. Like there's no joking around. It's not like, you know, going to like a Western wedding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I figured as much from the photos and videos I saw. Yeah. It's cool. Anything else you get up to in Kyoto? Uh, you ate lots of good food, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting because throughout Japan, you kind of have these different pockets. I mean, a city in itself is like a pocket and they have different approaches to how they create food. Mm-hmm experiences, whatnot, like in, in Kyoto, what's really big is Kapo, which is not necessarily omakase, but it's it's sort of in that vein where you're entrusting the chef to create stuff mm-hmm. for you. And it's a really intimate experience. We went to this restaurant and it was one guy working the whole thing and he was only like 27. Oh. And he was kind of giving us- I think Sarah's mentioned this place to me. It was, it was, it was really amazing just to see him kind of do everything, but also- maintain a conversation. It's almost as though he's like a bartender, but for food. And I, it's not to say that omakase isn't like that, but I think there's just the relationship you have is a lot more free and casual. Mm, that's cool. Yeah, it was really good. And I think like it's my second time in Kyoto, I think. Anyways, it's it's nice to be able to go to a city and all of a sudden it feels a little bit familiar. Yeah. Which sometimes you don't really have that opportunity or you like, we're only there for a few days. Yeah, you don't have to take that period of time to adjust to being somewhere new and just working out where you are and how things function. Yeah. So we totally. get to hang out soon in real life, you and me. Oh yeah, that is you right. You and me and also 300 yeah. other people together. And what Sharice is referencing is our Unexpected Connections Conference in LA slash Long Beach on November 7th. Yes, so one week, exactly one week from... This moment of recording. It's been really interesting to see this all come together because obviously for us, like we're not really on the production side that has to go to our good friends over at Imprint who are doing an amazing job of really putting together everything and making sure all the check boxes have been ticked off. I've been in a lot of calls in the last few days. Um, But I think it's like, it's interesting because us being here in Hong Kong or you being in London, me, Hong Kong, them in California, just understanding the whole workflow. I think in the future, just as much as consuming digital media has become a skill in itself, I think remote working will be a skill in itself as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, we talked about this last making it up as well. It's like, hey, this is a thing that is evolving and these are skills that you didn't necessarily need, you know, 20 years ago. And all of a sudden now you really need to understand how to work properly with people. Yeah. And definitely I think the skills for remote working is not just understanding how to use Google Hangouts or a calendar, but it's also soft skills. I think one thing that I've realized is working remotely, you have to remind yourself to be empathetic about other people and just compassionate towards them. Because I think the removal makes it harder because when you're in front of someone, it's very natural to get a sense of that person's emotions or where they're at or their mental state. But working remotely, you have to just remind yourself, this is a real person sitting, you know, in California or Hong Kong or wherever. And that should guide your interaction. Totally. And it's also the increasingly 
globalized nature of it all also means you need to understand how to interact with different cultures. Like you just can't be as direct with some people. There's different yeah. things that, that need to be considered when you're communicating with somebody. Tell me about this London meetup you've been planning. Yes. So it's interesting because... Sharice has a huge smile on her face right now. Well, it's just so funny because like Bezod is in town and then Jonathan Choi is in town over overlapping the same time, which feels kind of coincidental. And then there's like an exist, as you know, there are existing members of Macon in London who are, who have been really supportive of us and willing to like, and excited to meet up. And so we're all kind of figuring out a best time to hang out. And we might all just go to YY's matcha bar together. And I'm thinking about maybe doing a dinner after that. It just feels really like a community within a community. I mean, we are obviously still part of Macon. We're not now becoming like London Macon, but it's nice to have this physical manifestation of it. I guess it just feels different as well because like in Hong Kong, all of the Macon members are mostly like people I already know or our friends are friends. But here it's actually people without Macon I wouldn't have known. Yeah. Yeah, it is really interesting. I'm curious when you don't have an existing relationship with somebody, but you're still on a similar page, do you find that friendships develop a certain way? Yeah. Or are they just the same? No, I think I think necessarily because we met through Macon, the start of the these friendships is with that lens and is probably more geared towards conversations and events that go a certain way. And I think it would take more time for friendships like this to evolve into like uh, more casual things. Like not that I wouldn't ask one of them to help me move house, let's say, like they're not the people I would think of. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So stories that we published this week include the second Making Classroom installment, which is going really well. I think it's, we definitely hit on this subject that people are looking for. You know, I was thinking about that too. And how do you put the tools in the hands of people, but also go above and beyond? Because I'm thinking like, I think a guide is a good place to get you started, but how do you increase people's uh, opportunity to learn from an, from a piece of content like this? Right. Like I'm, I was curious if we're doing enough to kind of facilitate people asking questions or does it come down to like, well, if they really want to know, they'll ask. Well, I think the next iteration of something like this is what Skillshare and Masterclass do, which is having assignments of some kind. Not to say that we are going to mark everyone's assignments, but even making suggestions for how you could, like a physical thing that you could do, that you could go out and try to do. And then providing the opportunity, hey, you can send it in to us if you want to, like no promises, but we will at least read it and respond. Like no promises as in, it doesn't mean we will publish whatever you wrote, but we would be happy to like read it and provide feedback. Yeah, actually, you know what is something that kind of uh, made me think about this more was, I think Gimlet Media has a podcast that's like 
Making the Band or America's Next Top Model, but for podcasters. Have you heard of this? And it released, I think, in September. Yeah. I haven't yeah, gone around to listening to it, but I thought it was kind of interesting. But you haven't listened to any episodes. I haven't, but I heard about it. What other stories did we release? Yeah. The other stories we published are Jeff Staple, who is speaking at UCC in conversation with Karen Okonkwo, co-founder of Tonal. And we also just published a story on Viet Max. Yeah. For those unfamiliar, Viet Max is a look back on the progression of Vietnamese hip hop. And it's done through the lens of one of kind of the OGs in the space. And it's just interesting to see how people were consuming culture or trying to consume culture when it wasn't necessarily as convenient. And I think what was most striking was he basically taught himself how to read English to understand, you know, what was being said and what was going on within hip hop. Learning English to kind of understand a culture is something that is a good indication of things people do. Like I've, I remember hearing about people that would learn how to read Chinese just so they could bet on horses, like horse racing. I have not heard that. That is interesting. It really just puts things into context. If you really want to do it, you can do it. So my subject for today is a McKinsey study of 300 companies that reveals what businesses could do better when it comes to design. McKinsey is a American worldwide management consulting firm that conducts qualitative and quantitative analysis to evaluate management decisions and management systems. When they spent the last five years studying 300 companies that joined voluntarily, And these companies allowed them to look through a lot of financial data and to rank them based off of different design actions. And the article from Fast Company says that they went through 2 million pieces of financial data and 100,000 design actions. So something that was really interesting to me about this is I happened to be reading this book, which you've probably heard of, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And it's about human brains and how we have two systems, basically a slow thinking system and a fast thinking system. And we we use them so intuitively that we don't really think about our brains shifting between those two modes, but it explains a lot of things like biases, like how to relate to this article, how we might think that design is valuable intuitively, but we might not be very good at ranking it according to objective data. Actually, we're terrible at that across the board. Even people who are statisticians, if you ask them a question that triggers their subjective judgment, they will ignore the objective data that they know. So the important thing about studies like this is to not just is not to just rely on what you think you know, but to really work the slow thinking system and think about the numbers. Well, one thing I want to point out is that these 300 companies aren't small companies. They're all big companies. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's it's mostly commercial companies, I would say. Uh, some of the industries that the study was done in include medical technology, consumer goods, and retail banking. 
And to sum it up, all of these companies were interested in having their products stand out. So it is a study done with very commercial intent because the ultimate findings are about what design actions, what areas in design companies can improve in order to improve their bottom line. And what they found is that design-led companies had 32% more revenue and 56% higher total returns. So it is interesting because I think also for me right now being in school, we are definitely not talking about design in this way. It's valuable, but so far we have not really gone into how does design improve commercial value. Even if I agree with the areas that McKinsey highlighted that are important to work on. So if I could ask you, what is the difference between design aesthetically and just design thinking? No, actually, no, no, no. Those four areas that I haven't mentioned yet that McKinsey suggests, I agree. And actually all of my classmates would also agree that these are good things to do. But I think it's the end goal that is different. I don't think we talk a lot about making a company money. So it's just structured as being design should be good for the user or design should Mm -hmm. be thought through to be practical and functional, but not because that means this stock is going to be more valuable. So it's really something that you're working on in hopes it'll pay off somewhere else down the line, but you just don't really know where. Well, it's kind of like this study. I guess what I'm saying is that we think of it more in doing your job well to, to the best that it can be done, but not thinking, but not trying to focus on the fact that if we do this well, then our company will become 32% more financially valuable, even though that is a side effect. So one example that McKinsey talks about is this company that did a pilot on a new surgical device. And that's really cool that they made a new surgical device that was more useful than everyone else's competitive product, because that means in a surgery setting, it was of greater function to a surgeon. And I think for a designer, that is more exciting than to think, ah, this medical device company market share increased by 40%. Does that make sense? Both of those things happen. It's just that one of them is kind of more exciting to a certain person. Um, But maybe I should talk about the four areas. So the four areas that McKinsey recommends companies do is track design's impact as a metric, as much as you do cost and revenue. Put users first by actually talking to them put designers in cross-functional teams and incentivize top talent and encourage research, early stage prototyping and iterating. So when I think of those things, I actually don't really associate that with design as I know it. Like it's not the first thing that pops into my mind. What I do find interesting is a lot of it does come down to like the process of design and thinking about the intentions behind it. I think that's what I find most fascinating about behind this. All. What is the kind of design that you think of? It's, I think it's really about the aesthetics of things. You know what I mean? Like if I was going to be very honest to myself, like, oh, that, that has good design. And I don't think of, oh, that has good UX 
good UI. I just look at it. Well, I guess UI is 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 technically the visual side. But like when I look at a shoe, I'll be like, hey, that has good design in reference to its aesthetics. I think that's a very limited view of aesthetics. design because that would that's that's definitely oh, totally no one hundred percent. That's definitely not at all how I, I think about it. But it's interesting to know that that is how you think about it. Because I mean, I think that go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I well, I was gonna say I I look at it as design as the the how do I look at it? It's like if you're not directly part of the process and you're not a designer, you're only consuming the design. That's naturally what you're gonna look at first and foremost. So I'm not surprised. Like I'm not shocking myself when I say that, hey, you know what? Design actually has these other components and it's, this is what makes a great product. But immediately, I think that the aesthetics are kind of what drive you to either engage with it on a first touch point or not. The word design is complicated. and It's loaded. And yeah, it's the, complicated. The types of areas that it covers is really broad because if you think about it, all systems are designed so your personal organization so your personal organization system is a kind of design that you deliberately set up for yourself that is a design even though that's not something that has any aesthetic whatsoever and it's the same for mm-hmm. UX UI so if we talk about making it's not just the website that's designed but also our entire community experience is a kind of design so when they talk about design, it's not just the, it's not wallpaper or paint. It's those intentional, deliberate decisions at every point. Got it. But you know what? My pushback against that is like, I don't think you're incorrect, but I think the general public looks at the visual side of things. Like for example, people will look at all these different sort of digital native brands together side by side and they're like, they all look the same. Right. And no one's ever like, oh, they all serve the same function. So I think that's kind of where I'm coming from when it comes to design being very aesthetically driven. And it's also the argument that everything kind of looks the same. So yeah, here's a question. It's like, if you look at the role design plays, would you agree that the aesthetics are arguably the least important side of it? And the function, the UX, UI being the more important side. That's a really hard question to answer because I don't, I don't like the setup of that question, which requires me to say that something is important and something is less important. But if I think about it, what can I sacrifice? I would more readily sacrifice something in aesthetic for something that is higher functioning. So for example, actually we can talk about the make-in briefing, which has evolved to be subjectively, right, by some people's opinions, maybe less aesthetically well-designed, okay, in terms of just color or the photos. I'm, de- I'm like a subjective opinion, could say that. But if we look at the data, if we look at metrics, it's a better design because of people's open and click rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think if the actual physical design doesn't Sorry, physical makes you think of an object. But if the actual object doesn't serve its function, whether it's a newsletter to be read or a teapot that serves tea or a hot water kettle that boils hot water, then it doesn't matter how good it looks. Well, okay, it doesn't not matter. It matters somewhat, but it's not 
the first thing. So the reason I bring that up is as we start to look at the space and we recognize that, hey, things are actually starting to become more and more similar aesthetically. So they become negated. So then you have to rely on sort of the design thinking side of everything. Because hypothetically, like everything is the same. Everything looks the same. So how do people need to, how should people be thinking in regards to creating something that's differentiated? Well, what I've been kind of working on is to just start making the things that call to you to just be more in tune with regards to what do you enjoy? What do you naturally gravitate towards and want to see executed? You should just go make that and then see from there what happens. I think it's, it depends what you're designing, right? Because there are things that don't require user testing, like an album cover probably shouldn't be user tested before you make it. But if you're making a hot water kettle, that probably deserves some user testing. Was there anything about this study that surprised you? Oh, yes. The thing that was surprising was that they found out you had to be in the top 25% in order to see real economic gains. So there wasn't really any difference between zero to 75%. Actually, I don't know if I'm saying the percentage right, but basically the top quartile had the most significant financial rewards. And then everyone else, there was not that much of a difference. So it's kind of like, okay, if you're good up to this point, it actually makes no difference than not being good at all. You got to be the top. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I was kind of wondering why that is. One thing I was wondering was design as we know it and design maturity, they are things that in my eyes are, are not super mature. So what I mean by that is I think we've become much more design savvy as, as a global culture more recently. So it's kind of like if you were early to embrace design, then you have such a head start. Yeah, I think so. I think so. That was I think it was just interesting to me as well, because even though I said earlier about how in school right now, we don't talk a lot about the value add for companies and for management in real life when we're out in our jobs, that is the argument that we have to make for design. It's not enough to just say to a, and I understand why, like it's not enough to just say to a company owner, hey, the users are just going to be happier using this, or you know, this fits their needs better. What they do need is to see this is really going to improve our stock value. I'm talking about like large companies. And I understand that. Like I understand why it is that way because they have to make an argument for spending resources. And you can't set up an argument on a feeling. You can't say, oh, I feel like users are going to be happier. So you should give me more money. Yeah. I mean, you can start somewhere with that, but I generally agree. Yeah. So I think that's what's useful about it. Even if... Even if as a personal practitioner, what motivates you is not the money, you have to know how to make that money-related argument.
My subject is, is AI the future of perfume? IBM is betting on it. This topic stems from a Vox story that was done on their new vertical, The Goods, which talks about consumer culture. And for those unfamiliar with sort of the world of perfume culture, perfume, the perfume industry, for centuries, perfumers were sort of this very select bunch of people who had the power to create these very pleasant smelling, harmonious scents. And scent is arguably one of the most important senses because it evokes memories, emotions, and moods. There's a there's a major global fragrance company called Simrise, who are based in Germany, and they've recently and they've recently been working with IBM on developing algorithms to help figure out the ideal scent based on geography and customer age. The name of the algorithm called Filra, Filira. I don't even know. How do you pronounce that? P-H-I-L-Y-R-A. Um, I don't know, bud. Filira. Anyways, it's the name of the algorithm developed by IBM's Thomas J. Watson Research Center. And it's already gone to work developing two millennial focus scents for the Brazilian market and a brand called, once again, a thing that uh, I will probably struggle to pronounce, but Botacario? Botacario? Hmm. Something along those lines. <laughs> Anyways. So the way this algorithm works is Simrise has 1.7 million fragrance formulas that it's collected over the years. And these are formulas that they've sold to Estee Lauder and Coty. And these have been applied for various things, whether it's a high-end fragrance, uh, use in a consumer product. So basically- This is so interesting. You didn't just mention the consumer products. They make sense, not just for like, you know, fine perfumes- for men and women to wear on themselves, but the sense for toothpaste and pet food, detergent, snacks, soda. So funny. Yeah. So all that stuff. And what they do is they take the fragrance formulas and they intersect it with the sales performances. And then on top of that, they layer in demographics and geography. Mm. So they then take this information and they can apply it to the development of new scents. So one one thing that they're quick to point out is that this algorithm won't be replacing humans just yet because in many ways, what it does is it gets you to a certain point. It might get you out of the starting blocks yeah. and someone that is needed to take you over the line, who is that person? It's probably someone with a bit more expertise and who can sort of refine the subtle nuances of this fragrance or scent. But you know, it's so interesting because your subject relates to my subject because- It's about data and relying on objective metrics, numbers, essentially. And it's funny Mm -hmm. to think that scent is a thing that's so powerful, like it evokes memories and moods, but we still rely on, so far we've been reliant on people to make sense. We can't possibly expect a, even the best I don't know, what are they called? Perfumeries? Noses, as this article says. We, yeah. we can't expect even the best perfumer slash nose to be, to divorce himself or herself from his emotions and moods. And the algorithm kind of steps in to help out. What's also interesting too, is that I'm curious how this all plays in. And mind you, certain demographics and certain sort of geographical details will kind of put you in a certain place. So for example, if you grew up in South America, you might have access to flowers, fruits, vegetables, whatever it may be that might evoke an emotion. 
Whereas like if I'm in Canada or I'm in Europe, I don't have access to those same, I guess, ingredients. Yeah, and you also, maybe you don't have those same facts. The reality is the machine, the computer will know what's local way better than any person, if, if that's what you're looking for. There's a reason why I thought this was so interesting because generally speaking, and maybe this is incorrect on our part, we, we, we talk a lot of shit about algorithms on making it up. Um, maybe it's just because of the inherent byproduct of that world has led us to kind of question their value. But I think this is a good representation of how it can be helpful. Yeah. And I also think that what's interesting is that fragrances are kind of lumped into the fashion world. Mm -hmm. But what I think is different about fragrances is that I'm, well, this is maybe me just speculating. Like I think people generally gravitate towards a fragrance on the basis of what they actually enjoy in terms of a scent, mm -hmm. right? Whereas fashion, like a t-shirt, I might buy a t-shirt on the basis that like, I wanna promote this sort of outward message to the people around me. I don't know if scents give off that same sort of uh, reaction because you're wearing it because, oh, this smells good. And that's obviously a little bit defined by your own personal interests. Mm -hmm. I think that we talk shit about algorithms on this podcast because most often we're talking about algorithms in media and social platforms and technologies with a lot of human users. And we see those algorithms being less than ideal, even so much as to like cause harm or to, or to encourage us to be worse people. And I think that's why we talk shit about it. I don't, I don't think it's that we doubt the potential of algorithms. We think that it's the the application that technology companies have used them for are questionable, right? Like, especially yeah. because often we talk about it in relation to advertising as well. So definitely feels yeah. like in general, an area that we need to push back against, but an application like this, like I think about it and, you know, I don't think it harms anyone. I don't see the algorithm as threatening. In this sense. Yeah. Ah, sense. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In, in but to that, but yeah, to that point, I, I think that what I'm trying to get at is that if everyone on the street all wore the same cologne or perfume, would that be a bad thing? But I, I don't think they will. I, I'm just saying, like hypothetically, like you know, this is this is what happens. I don't, I don't know why, but I, I am much more okay with that than everyone wearing the same thing. Oh, interesting. I mean, okay. I really don't think everyone is going to wear the same scent because even if- No, no, no. Even if the computer calibrated it to be popular, we are individuals with weird noses. So not nothing is going to appeal to everyone. But if you talk about in this hypothetical scenario, maybe it's because it's less obvious that it's speaking to you because the way scents work mm. when we smell them, I don't think we don't often process that it's happening. And sometimes even when we smell something and we feel comfortable, we can't explain why we're really bad actually at describing mm. any smell. Mm. So that could be why it seems less intrusive because it's just the thing that happens at the back of your brain. So one of the other underlying reasons why I found this so interesting was that 
in light of everyone sort of lamenting that, oh, AI is going to take over and it's going to do this and that, this to me represents the most sustainable future use case and relationship between AI and the creative world, where the heavy lifting at the very beginning is done by an algorithm or AI. And it's really at some point within that chain where the human can come in and decide where he wants to get involved. And also laying on certain things that maybe the algorithm doesn't have access to. And I'm, you know, this is the one thing that I've always pushed for. And maybe someone that has greater expertise in the world of AI would would probably correct me. But if the data is only looking backwards, but it doesn't necessarily have the data to look forwards or in the present necessarily, what does that mean? So that's obviously humans and their ability to kind of understand where culture is at any given moment in time. Mm. So I say this on the basis that, you know, let's say a new scent emerges because for whatever reason, like it it has a massive distribution channel where I'm making this up, grape soda becomes this massively influential smell or scent. Yeah. And maybe like down the line, like that integrates itself into something because, hey, you know what? There's that sense of nostalgia, which has proven to be an important part mm-hmm. of something going really big. Mm-hmm. Is like that familiarity, right? Yeah. I mean, drawing on the past is obviously much easier for computers and humans because everything is existing. And then looking into the future is much harder because ultimately there are still things left to chance or luck, if you want to call it that, or randomness. We can't predict what abruptly happens, neither us or a computer. Maybe for whatever reason, suddenly bananas are easier to grow and they become the most common. Actually, maybe they are the most common household fruit. I shouldn't have used a banana, a pomegranate. Um, And then that affects how people respond to fragrances. Sorry, I'm going to reference that book again because there's a person in Thinking Fast and Slow who develops an algorithm to predict the future market prices of red wines or wines in a specific area. And there was a lot of pushback against that because the experts were saying how you can't replace a person who can taste the wine with a machine that is making its best calculation off of numbers. But I was wondering what the difference is Mm. between the wine thing and this perfume example. So one thing I was... Curious, and I wanted to end off on this note. What part of your current creative process would you happily pass off to AI, regardless of whether or not that system exists for it to execute for you? But you're like, hey, this is the part of my creative process I hate the most, and I would love it if a machine took over. Mm. I do do some repetitive work for Macon, I do the Instagram stories. And I copy edit the briefing and I publish the Saturday newsletter. And all of those are very computer friendly tasks. I feel like it is definitely possible that you could train a computer to do those things. And then I could just review it and publish it. What else? I don't know. I wouldn't give up copy editing though. I feel like, 
like, you know, actually there is an existing algorithm. There's Grammarly, which you use and I yep. don't use it. Um, I'm probably making more errors than you, honestly, but I'm not something about me. Doesn't make me feel willing to let that go. I actually just, I would like a machine yeah. to just generate options for me because, okay. So for example, yesterday, that's crazy. You know what? That is exactly what I was thinking. So my example, while you were deliberating, I was going to jump in, but I was like, oh, I'll give her a few more okay, moments to think it. about it. Imagine if you need to put together a mood board and you're like, hey, I need photos of mountains with bodies of water. I need uh, people holding balloons and I need shots of sneakers yes. and people dangling their feet off of buildings. Yes, I don't know. yes, definitely. Actually, something I've already given over to machines is I don't really pick color palettes anymore. I use a website that generates different color palettes and you just press a refresh button. So I just click refresh until I see something that works, which means I, I'm still yeah. picking, but I didn't have to like use an eyedropper and like find five colors. Like they're just generated for me. Yeah. So yesterday we were making a design within a, just to simplify it, we had to make a maze to call it simply. And there are so many possibilities for a maze and I'm sketching out the possibilities. And I'm like, this is dumb because a computer could do this in a second if I just had the right thing that could use the parameters I set and then show me all of the options. Yeah. Yeah. Those things I don't find valuable to be spending time doing. Yeah. It's interesting. Unless there's some sort of value in the pursuit of finding options. Um, yeah. Yeah, why not give that Actually, over? also sometimes when I'm reading, I wish that there was some way a computer could highlight, actually, these three paragraphs are not useful. Like you can just skip ahead. Obviously, this doesn't work for like fiction, but when I'm reading nonfiction or an article or something academic, I'm like, I wish you could, I wish something could just cut the flack out because I know it's in here, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in learning more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makein.com. If you really enjoy this podcast, and we hope you do, we ask you to do one thing and one thing only. Can you share this podcast with someone that you think would find this interesting, who want to have their thoughts around creative culture challenge or contextualized. That's all we ask. Hit that share button, post it on Instagram stories, or as some of you have as well, share this on Twitter. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, if you want to question our arguments, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, and Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. -E. We love hearing your feedback. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.